future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, September 16th, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Out to Coop podcast. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. And just a reminder, we don't want to let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on today's show, we got lots of stuff going on. Uh, this year's United Nations Climate Report states pretty plainly that we are heading into, quote, uncharted territory of destruction as the world moves into the wrong direction on climate action. The report comes out as, you know, one third of Pakistan is under floodwaters, uh, causing upwards of 1,500 deaths so far. Fires rage in Europe and the United States West Coast. Droughts deepen across the globe. Near famine conditions across parts of Africa. As Tasneem Isop, um, executive director of Climate Action Network, told The Guardian, quote, the terrifying picture painted by the United in Science report is already a lived reality for millions of people facing recurring climate disasters. The science is clear, yet the addiction to fossil fuels by greedy corporations and rich countries is resulting in losses and damages for communities who have done the least to cause the current climate crisis. Exclamation point. And a massive railroad strike was temporarily averted as union negotiators reached a tentative agreement on a contract. But don't get too comfy. The agreement still needs to be ratified by workers, and it is not a shoe-in. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that, although the, all the news headlines uh, really are kind of saying, oh, this is great, super victory for workers, Biden's going out, kind of circling... Uh, you know, uh, if you listen to Democracy Now! yesterday, you talk to kind of one of the leaders of <laughs> some of these unions, especially the kind of like uh, the, uh, some of the workers' caucus in the unions, um, they hadn't even seen the text of the agreement and the terms of it. And uh, some of the stuff is not as promising as uh, the Biden administration and, uh, you know, the news media like to proclaim it. Um, so we shall see. Um, I just want to just kind of keep that as still an open book. Don't quite shut that and kind of go on with your business yet. Watch what's going on here. Um, we may get uh, somebody on uh, on the show. Um, got some requests out to come talk about this uh, on Monday, but we shall see. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. Uh, and quiet quitting is all the rage. 
Yes, and a recent NPR story on the trend had me enraged. How you doing? <laughs> All right, we'll tell, talk a little bit about that today. And the founder of the outdoors company, Patagonia, transferred ownership of the $3 billion company to the nonprofit organization, The Holdfast Collective. The Holdfast Collective is devoted to combating climate change. I guess we're still in the territory of believing that billionaires are going to get us out of this thing, right? I mean, not, not look, I'm not poo-pooing on this one. I mean, it's a, he's like, okay, not that I could solve the problem, but here's an organization that got, I'm just going to, there you go. There's, you're the people who are doing the work. I'm going to give you the money, right? Or the company, at least. The company's website now reads, Earth is now our only shareholder. A little closer to home here in Bucks County, Central Bucks West High School administrators tell teachers not to use students' preferred names or pronouns if they don't match the information in the school's database. Unless, of course, they get the parents' permission. The school's new, quote, gender identification procedure Right. I mean, do they actually walk in with kind of like SS on their thing? Right. You know, I'm seriously, um, this is some freaking crazy stuff. Anyways, the the school's new gender identification procedure is putting Central Bucks in legal jeopardy once again. And teachers are speaking openly about defying the order. Right. That's that is for me. The big news here is finally we're getting kind of like several teachers, not just a single teacher, but several teachers coming out saying, nope, we're not doing that. We are not going to put our kids in jeopardy. No. And Bucks County's Republicans reluctantly removed the January 6th insurrectionist Don Bancroft from their Doylestown committee seat. Yep. In a now infamous video Bancroft posted from the riot, she said, quote, remember this one is an oldie but goodie. Right from the riot, she said this. She on video, we broke into the Capitol, we got inside, we did our part. We were looking for Nancy to shoot her in the freaking brain, but we didn't find her. Yep, the Doylestown or the Bucks County Republicans really kind of had to kind of like really kind of uh, deal with some pressure from a whole bunch of sectors uh, before they actually removed her from the seat. I think they were quietly hoping they would, that the controversy would just go away. Um, but turns out having someone who's under indictment and kind of is like facing trial and conviction um, and someone who openly said they wanted to kind of shoot Nancy Pelosi in the freaking brain, probably not the best person to have on their committee, right? So they finally got rid of her. Speaking of Bucks County Republicans, a group of former Republican lawmakers and officials under the banner of Republicans for Shapiro held a fundraiser for Josh Shapiro in Bucks County at the home of former Republican U.S. Congressman James Greenwood. But don't hold your breath for a change of course for the Bucks County Republican Party. A Bucks County Republican committee statement about the group, this is back in January, or I'm sorry, July, I believe, um, the statement about the group said, you know, it's kind of disappointing that you got these Republicans for Shapiro. And they and the statement continued by saying, quote, while the list may contain contain former elected officials who once ran as Republicans, these men and women do not represent the values of the Republican Party, especially here in Bucks County. So who does represent those values? Don Bancroft, maybe? Yeah, I think so. 
Today's last call got a couple little space news. Uh, yeah, return of space news. NASA Perseverance rover, rover turned up the highest concentration of organic matter on Mars in an ancient uh, that they had yet found um, in an ancient river delta in the Jezero crater. Scientists say that while the organic matter itself does not prove that Mars could have sustained life at one point in its history, we are one step closer to an answer. Of those rock samples, you know, they're able to do some analysis, um, you know, just from kind of remotely. Uh, but those rock samples are actually from the Perseverance ro uh, rover will actually be returned to Earth as part of two missions, one from NASA, one from the European Space Administration. Um, and those are slated for 2027 and 2028. And a giant fireball streaked across the skies of Northern England, Northern Ireland, and Scotland on Wednesday night. No, it was not an angel blessing the coronation of King Charles III, nor was it more of Elon Musk's space junk. Nope, scientists now confirm that it was a large meteor that probably broke off a larger asteroid, right? Um, which is interesting. They say it landed, uh, kind of landed out to sea. It's like 112 miles or 100, 100 miles or so like this from, um, trying to remember, uh, for, what did they say? Let me just look at that real quick. Uh, see, here you go in the UK. Meteor Network, uh, blah, 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 off, off uh, Islay, right? So they, think, uh, they said that it uh, probably ended up about 50 to 100 kilometers um, off Islay. So... Um, kind of landed in the ocean. Um, no one was hurt, um, which is good. And they say it's probably at the bottom of the ocean now, so that'd be kind of cool to go check it out. No. <laughs> Anyways, for more PA Progressive Talk, check out the Rick Smith Show's live stream every night at 9 p.m. You can find it wherever you get your streams for all the information about his podcast, his TV show, his, you know, all the kind of stuff Rick's got going on. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And look, season two, the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is flooding your streams, right? You got to find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House, and know where their bodies are buried. And their podcast is all the more critical as we kind of nudge up ever so close um, to the 22, 2022 midterm elections. Make sure to follow them on Twitter as well at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. At Attention Gamers, the Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And look, with the return to school, right, uh, I believe, i got to check it on this, but I believe they br are bringing back their discounts for kids who bring in the A's on the report card. How about that? Check out The Game In on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at The Game In. That's with two N's. If you got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And look, everybody. Uh, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging, Ch for La Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Um, look, we're here for it. We need, we're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. 
And special shout out also goes to all our new subscribers to our YouTube channel. Thank you so much. We keep on inching up. Um, look, it's a great way that you can help support the show. It doesn't cost you a dime. Tell people about the show. Encourage them to subscribe. Even if you're not someone who watches YouTube all the time, I'll tell you, it helps other people find the show. You just head on over there and make you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Right? Um, you don't get kind of spammed by it. You just get a little notification and it says that, you know, oh, this is going on here. And that helps other people find the show. Um, it's been pretty great. Um, and also, look, if you're into it, you listen to this as a podcast, wherever you get your podcast, leave us a review. If you're on kind of like Apple Podcasts, like leave us a review, give us that five-star rating. Again, it's just a little thing that you can do that help other people find the show and expand the reach of um, the work that all these amazing people that we have on the show are doing. Um, so that's great. So, yeah, so here we are. Um, we are, you know, officially in the uh, middle of the month of September. And we are that much uh, closer to the 2022 midterm elections. Um, I know the uh, the organizing on the ground um, has been kind of outstanding um, by Democrats. But, you know, also you've got um, lots of motivated people that are um, on the Mastriano, you know, Christian nationalist uh, band, bandwagon. So those folks are motivated, too. It's going to be quite an election. Uh, we just got news that our local polling place is now going to switch to electronic poll books, which is a bit frustrating for me. I've heard some um, um, not great things about um, about them, um, people's other experiences with them, about the the not so much in terms of like um, not so much in terms of complete breakdown or failure or wrong information, but. You know, if you've ever worked in a polling place, you know that, look, you have to, you know, there's ways of kind of checking um, someone's registration, right? And you, you're looking for ways to confirm the registration. And what I have been told is that with these electronic poll books, you know, it can be a little bit onerous, right? And what that, the problem with that is not so much that you can't get to the answer that you want, right? You could do that, but it takes that much longer, which means you're backing up the lines and you're kind of, you're slowing down the process of voting. So that's my big concern. So I got to go to some trainings to kind of see what that's all about. We shall see. Um, you know, it's, there are certain things that I will say that, look, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Right. You know, the, the paper, you know, <laughs> the paper books are, uh, one of those things, right? I mean, it's right there. You've got it. And if, if there's any problem, you have like one number to call and then you're done. Um, how about keep it that, right? So anyways, um, so we'll shall see a lot of stuff coming up and look, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to be, uh, out there and showing up for. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but the, um, the United Nations climate report is pretty concerning. Um, this is one of the things that I'm going to just continue hammering this year. Um, because it's, I'm telling you, this is bad. And I know you know that, right? If you've been listening to the show for any kind of like length of time, uh, you know, I know that you know that this is bad. Um, but, you know, we're just not moving fast enough. And I, I honestly don't know, like, what it's going to take, right? I mean, you know, I mean, how many climate protests you go to how much how many letters a letter you're going to say i mean what you know 
how many more kind of like Greta Thunbergs do we need, right, to really put this pressure? I mean, I, I think it's really going to have to get to the point of mass direct action before that we're going to get lawmakers to respond because this is good. So let me just run through with you the um, what this report, this United in Science report found. And bear with me. I won't go through everything, but these are some of the top ones. Uh, the Guardian's got a great article on this. We'll break some of it down. So found that the past seven years were the hottest on record, and there was, there is a 48% chance during at least one year in the next five that the annual mean temperature will temporarily be 1.5 degrees Celsius higher than the 1850 to 1900 average, right? Now, remember, we're supposed to be keeping that temperature below 1.5 degrees Celsius, right? Now, climate change, global warming, right, is, is erratic, right, in the sense that it doesn't kind of just like slowly get warmer and everything just gets a little bit warmer and that's it. No, we know that it produces like catastrophic storms, right? It's, uh, it, it was very contradictory thing. Like, so suddenly it can be, get super cold in places that were not cold before. It can get super dry in places that were not so much dry before. I mean, we saw, for example, or super hot in places that never get hot, like the Pacific Northwest this year, right? So this is, you know, remind me when I first read this, like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, right? Because it doesn't just evenly heat, it goes up and down. It's hotter, you're going to pop it up and pop it down. So what's going to happen in those those years, right? 48% chance that at least one year in the next five, not 50, five we're talking now. We're talking like time frames within like, you know, our near future now, because that's what we've decided that we're going to do as a civilization, I guess. Right. So that it could pop up there. And that means that kind of kick up in heat is also going to kind of, you know, push some of these uh, tipping points um, and see if it's going to, you know, cause a collapse of certain things. Right. We talked about this last week about the, you know, about the um, the uh, the speeding up of glacial collapse of the um, uh, the the ice sheet in western Antarctica. And all scientists say, oh, God, this could go faster. Now, so what happens? Does that, if we have a year that kicks up to above 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming in one particular year, does that speed up that process and then therefore speed up that collapse, right? Because even if the next year dips down, right, to 1.3 degrees warning, let's just say that dips down, you've already done the damage, right? If that glacial ice sheet is kind of gone, right, if that, if that collapse, that, that's... It's collapsed, right? You were talking about six feet of flooding, right? Six feet of sea rise. Plus. So there you go. Next thing, global mean temperatures are forecast to be between 1.1 uh, degrees Celsius and 1.7 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial uh, levels from 2022 to 2026. And there is a 93% probability that at least one year in the next five will be warmer than the hottest year on record, which was 2016. Another finding was dips in carbon dioxide emissions during the lockdowns associated with the COVID-19 pandemic were temporary and carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels returned to pre-pandemic levels last year. So we got a blip to say that, oh my God, it is possible to bring these down because of the pandemic. We saw it, we saw there's a result in that, but um, it didn't take long. We were still technically in the pandemic, 
and we're already back to pre-pandemic levels, which means we are not doing enough. Next thing, national pledges on greenhouse gas emissions are insufficient to hold global heating to 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius uh, above pre-industrial levels. Uh, we've been saying this for a long time. All climate scientists have been saying this for a long time. Anybody who does work in climate action has been saying this for a long time, right? Simple pledges. Yeah, promises, they're basically what they are. You know, pinky swears are not going to get it done. There has to be just massive, massive attention to this in action right um it's not just gonna you know the market is not going to solve this problem right and i'll be one to even say look it's not that the market is it will not do anything oh it'll do some things i mean the the bringing on board of electric vehicles you know the kind of uh, the investments in uh like you know renewable energy sources in companies developing them that will have an impact but those are long-term impacts Right. By just hoping that, oh, we're going to encourage, we're going to give incentives and we're going to give tax breaks to people who do these things. It's not enough. You need direct investment. I mean, we need to move fast. The market moves slow. And frankly, even electric cars, right? You know, we say this over and over again. Electric cars, yes, that is going to be a necessary component. But really, we have to do massive investments in public transportation. And get away from individual vehicles, which also means, right, rethinking how we're structuring our lives. I think about this every day I go to work, right? I have an hour commute to work. And I just like, I'm, I, I feel like I'm kicking myself the entire way there. It's like, I, I, this, is, this is not good. You know, and all of us, all of us feel some of these contradictions in our lives, right? We know that we are acting as individuals against our against our long-term best interest right but we as individuals do not have the power to change transportation systems so we're in this kind of yes i got a hybrid car okay that's a step in the positive direction part of me wishes i waited now because now with these kind of electric you know car incentives like maybe just go 100 electric electric but okay, I took a step in the right direction. So we both drive hybrid cars, but that's not going to solve the problem. And then when my university tells me that, no, 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 you cannot do remote work. We don't want, we want to reduce the number of online classes. That means it, there's not a, a remote option for me to, to do this. And frankly, look, I mean, personally, I hate, I, I, I do not enjoy teaching online. Right. Um, however, um, if I, I would teach on the plan, I would teach online if I was doing it for the planet, <laughs> right? But that option's not available. Matter of fact, we've got multiple cases of people at Kutztown University who actually um, are in direct jeopardy because of COVID, um, have been denied accommodations to teach online. And so therefore they're there, you know, and we've talked about Steve Oro's situation. We just had another faculty member this week, um, kind of tell her story about how she's been kind of denied accommodations. Um, and there's like nothing that's gonna, you know, change that without kind of, you know, lawsuits and holding people account, but that's a different story. Next item, climate related disasters are causing $200 million in economic losses each day climate related disasters are causing 200 million dollars in economic losses a day 
a day. Another one, nearly half the planet, 3.3 to 3.6 billion people, that's billion with a B, are living in areas highly vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis. But fewer than half of the countries have early warning systems for extreme weather. You just do the simple math on that. What does that mean? You're living in areas that are highly vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis. That means we are basically locking in mass migration and death for people that are the most vulnerable. Another item, as global heating increases, tipping points, we've talked about this before, tipping points in the climate system cannot be ruled out. These include the drying out of the Amazon rainforest, the melting of the ice caps, and the weakening of the Atlantic um, Meri uh, meridional, I think how you say, over, um, overturning circulation known as the Gulf Stream. Right, This is that thing that kind of brings that warm water up the coast of the Atlantic, and then kind of it drops down off the coast of uh, the UK. Right. And that kind of brings a more temperate climate to Europe. Right. Um, if that slows down. Right. Or stops. Um, we're seeing we'll see pretty quick dramatic changes in the climate of uh, kind of Europe and, for example, the East Coast of the United States. There you go. And one last one I'll focus on here by the 2050s. Let's recall. 2050s is no longer kind of like 50 years away, right? 2050s are now almost 25 years away, right? By the 2050s, more than 1.6 billion people living in 97 cities will be regularly exposed to three-month average temperatures reaching at least 35 degrees Celsius, right? So that's 1.6 billion people, right? 1.6 billion, right? What is, what's 35 degrees Celsius mean? That's not about 95 degrees Fahrenheit. There we go. Here we go. that again three month average temperatures right so we're not just talking that they'll get to be oh we get hot one day no for three months average temperatures of 95 degrees 97 cities and you know when you do an average that means a whole bunch of those numbers are above 97 over those three months or 96 95 over those three months so, I mean, this is, I'll have to say, this has got me concerned, right? This has got me concerned. Other big news this week. Uh, today was the deadline um, and the of seeing basically whether or not the uh, railroad, rail, railroad workers um, were going to go on strike, right? Um, as soon as 12.01 a.m. Um, kind of today. Uh, just after midnight, um, the workers had already announced their intentions to strike uh, that they did not have a an agreement in place. Right. And so what was this all about? Why does this matter? Well, first of all, that that would have had a direct and immediate effect upon kind of our supply chain, our ability to distribute food and everything like this. And about one third of goods um, uh, 
in the United States is distributed by train. So it doesn't shut down everything, right? But boom, it means it shuts down a third of the, um, the goods that are going to be available. Right, so you think of long-term trains that are coming for California full with uh, kind of fresh vegetables, done. Not there, for example. Distribution of meat, kind of, you know, all that kind of stuff that would have come to a halt. And one of the things that's kind of, kind of a little bit disgusting about this is that the primary issues were not wages and health care like they normally are. The primary issues were... Like, yes, obviously better pay, but that was part of it. But they reached agreement on that a long time ago. The key thing was um, that they needed to have uh, sick leave. Sick leave. Yep. As uh, Washington Post reporter uh, Lauren Gurley, uh, Kaori Gurley said, uh, for folks asking, why is a railroad strike? She said this on Twitter. Uh, for folks asking, why is a railroad strike looming that would shut down much of the U.S., much of major transportation infrastructure in the U.S. and impact nearly every part of the economy, from food to energy to retail? Question mark. A little context. It all boils down to sick leave policies. Okay. Two of the largest railroad carriers, Union Pacific and BNSF, that's a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway have attendance policies that penalize workers up to firing for going to the doctor and attending family emergencies, right? Conductors and engineers say that they can be on call for 14 consecutive days and expected to drop everything at any time of day of work. They say the policy is destroying their lives. And so far, railroads are not budging on those things. Now, that apparently has changed, but we haven't seen the text of the agreement yet. Labor leaders say that 57,000 workers are angry and prepared to strike if this issue is not there. Living the way we live is absolutely brutal. Now, I was just like I said, I mentioned at the top of the show that um, at the top of the show that um, on Democracy Now! yesterday, that um, this one guy is ahead of a kind of caucus among labor, uh, among labor unions. This is one of the problems, right, is that there's, I, I want to say, 15 15 different unions, right, that are all a part of this right now, that are all basically standing together. Um, um, and that's that's good, right, um, obviously. And so, but then you need to basically a way of kind of building solidarity across all these unions, right, because, you know, you know it's not uncommon for, you know, uh, the employer, right, to pit one union against another, offer this union a sweet contract so that they can take more from this one, all that stuff, right? Classic divide and conquer strategy. But they would stand together. So one of these workers who was, uh, one of these guys, you know, workers who was uh, part of this caucus working across the unions was basically saying, look, if you look at, you know, it used to be the case, you know, he had gotten involved in, uh, became, a, became involved with the railroads, got a job with the railroads, you know, about, you know, about 25 years ago, I think he said. He said, you know, back then, look, people were encouraged to go. Like, it was a decent paying job, good paying job, right? You had, um, you had steady work, right? You could live close to home, all that kind of stuff. And so we were encouraged to be part of it, right? He was looked forward to be part and was proud to be kind of part of a railroad workers union and a railroad, rail, railroad worker. But over the years, that's been kind of like destroyed as like it's this classic story of American culture right now, American capitalism, right? That you kind of you make work worse. So they basically started getting away from a standard schedule. Can you imagine this? You just not having a standard schedule. You just had to be on call. Right. 
and you and the rules were at some of the unions he was talking about or some of the locations he was talking about you'd have to be on call and you have to be prepared to be at work within two hours without a standard schedule so you don't know like how much you're working from week to week right the bigger deal was what they were talking about these attendance policies There's zero zero paid sick days right and that's because there's a little carve out for railroads in labor law right which basically does not require workers to get sick days so they could put in these things that you know you you take off it's all on you and if like they said like she said in that uh in that that twitter thread right if you have to say your kids you get a call from the school you're at work you get a call from school or say you're not even at work yet Right. Say you're not even at work yet. Say you're sitting there on call and you're wondering. You you get a call from the school and you said your kids your kids sick. They're they're, they're they just threw up. Can you come get the kid? You're like yes. I'm going to get my kid. Right. You go to get your kid and you get a call saying, oh no, you got to be at work. You're like I can't. I got to take my kids to the doctor. We're in a waiting room. Blah 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 blah. They're like oh penalty. And if you yourself get sick, say with oh I don't know. A virus that's causing a pandemic? You don't get paid for time loss and you can be fired for not being at work, even though you're sick. So, now apparently, the what little I've seen thus far about this tentative deal um, is that workers are, uh, you know, the union was asking for 15 days of paid sick leave, right? Apparently, if I if I heard this correctly on the news this morning, that it was starting to leak out that well there there's like 14 days of unpaid sick leave, right? That you can't be fired or disciplined for missing work for, and one day of paid sick leave. Now we'll see if that's exactly what comes out. Um, even the person who was talking about this said that they're not they have not seen the full text. This is what they're told from some of the kind of um, people in negotiations. So this is why also why I'm saying don't like get too comfortable with, you know, this deal getting signed. Because, you know, if you you push pushing for 15 paid sick days and you get one and the rest are unpaid sick days. I don't know how that goes over, especially when you're seeing people at Amazon and Starbucks, Starbucks, right? Nurses unions on strike, right? Especially you're in the middle of a kind of a labor resurgence. Right. Do you sit there and do you kind of do what we've been doing in this country in the kind of like the neoliberal kind of, you know, era? Oh, just suck it up. I guess there's nothing we can do. I guess I'll take a minimum. I'll take a crumb. I'm not so sure those workers are prepared to just take a crumb. But, you know, I, I you know, again, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. There could be other things in that contract which could make the, now, the other thing that they said, it looks like there's. Uh, again, this is like second, third hand uh, that's been reported that um, they're going to get a steady con or steady schedule, right? I guess with some flexibility built into that, but that might be the the other the, the thing that will you know even it out, right? Because I mean you you kind of you're stretching people so thin that people are quitting, they don't want to work there anymore. The wages have gone down, all that kind of stuff, and on top of that, your entire life is disrupted. Right. And you have to just be on call like I don't have a steady schedule. I don't know about that. So we'll see where this goes. Um, my my guess is we'll probably start to see some more details today. Um, who knows? Maybe more is coming out even as I'm on air right now. Um, we'll see. 
so I want to, uh, uh, you know, one, I'll, let me mention this. You, I'm sure people saw the stuff on Patagonia. Patagonia transferred ownership of, of its uh, $3 billion company to a nonprofit organization, Holdfast Collective. They're devoted to combating climate change. Okay, this is great. I'm not going to say, you know, this is a bad thing. Obviously, $2 billion, that's huge. That's not, but that's also not like he donated $2 billion um, directly in money to that organization, right? It's all the stock and all the ownership that's over there. Apparently, the, comp the uh, family that runs it is still going to be involved in the day-to-day -day operations. So theoretically, Patagonia, as it keeps it going on and keeps on earning money, that that money is going to provide a steady stream of income to uh, that nonprofit organization to work on climate change. So, you know, again, is that a positive thing? Absolutely, right? Um, but, you know, again, if you think about the amount of news coverage has been to Patagonia doing this versus what the UN's climate study just said, it's like, yeah, this kind of stuff, you know, just like billionaires, you know, giving us hopes in our kind of the gods of today, the billionaires, right? You know, that they're going to come down, they're going to save us all. The You know, the guy on the white horse is going to come in or the white hat and the white horse, whatever, is going to come in. Oh, there's a solution. Jeff Bezos or like, you know, whatever. Like, no. Right. This is good. Right. Uh, but let's see more of it. Number one, let's see more of that happening. Right. After all, all that, you know, all wealth comes from the workers who generated it, right? So maybe it's time for them to start giving back to us. We shall see. So I do want to talk a little bit about this NPR story that um, just had me absolutely enraged this week. Um, and, you know, it, I, I'll be the first to admit that I'm probably um, getting... <sighs> My my up uh, my my frustration. It's not really enraged. I said really, if I really talk, but really my deep frustration uh, is probably out of proportion to what's actually being said here, right? But <clears throat> so this is a story that was uh, it was uh, part of NPR's Planet Money, right? And the title of it was called "The Economics Behind Quiet Quitting and What We Should Call It Instead." Okay, now. <clears throat> Let me just give you the, I'm going to give you the opening paragraphs, a few opening paragraphs here, and I'll talk you a little bit. That'll set the tone for it. So, say, over the last several weeks, the concept of quiet quitting has exploded like a supernova across the media universe. The Big Bang began on TikTok with a video uploaded by a 20-something engineer named Zayed Khan. With the sound of a piano playing, a ragtime-style tune, and a summertime shots of New York City flashing across the screen, Khan narrates a 17-second video that has introduced millions of people to the idea. Quote, I recently learned about this term called quiet quitting, where you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond, Khan says. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The reality is it's not, and your worth as a person is not defined by your labor, unquote. And now this is the commentary from um, uh, from the writers, who is Greg Rosa, uh, Rosalski and Alina Seljuka. Seljuk, I think, probably butchering their names. But then they follow up that with, say, quiet quitting, in other words, is not really about quitting. It's more like a philosophy for doing the bare minimum at your job. I want to read a little bit more, actually. In Japan, there's a concept concept called shokunin, which refers or shokunin. I'm not sure where the emphasis, uh, which refers to an artisan who is deeply dedicated to their craft, always striving for perfection in what they make. Quiet quitting is like the opposite of that. 
It's about divorcing your ego from what you do for a living and not striving for perfection. Setting boundaries and simply completing the task you're supposed to complete within the time that you're paid to do them with no extra frills. No more kowtowing to your boss or customers. No more working nights and weekends. Incessantly checking your email. Workaholism is out. Coasting is in. Call it the Work-Life Balance Manifesto. Okay, so why am I frustrated by this? Right? One, right, um, the... One of the key things <laughs> is that the way that these writers portray what quiet quitting is about, right, and how they're framing it, right, is just it's just drawing directly from all this slackerism stuff that circulated in the media that like millennials are lazy, Gen Z is lazy. It's all these people that just they just don't care. They've lost the kind of ethic. They've you know they're just uh, they only care about themselves. It's just a a an easy and frankly lazy kind of repeat of a cultural trope that looks at the what's happening when workers are frustrated with their with their work life that somehow it means that we're having a crisis of laziness right right it's the slouching toward gomorrah nonsense right and i want to point out that the way that they sum up Right, what Khan says in that TikTok, that is already like putting a, a a a a bias to it, right? It's putting a slant to it. It's spinning it in a particular direction, <clears throat> right? Look, because Khan says, I remember seeing this one. I said, Khan says, look, look, you're still performing your duties, right? But you're not subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. And I remember talking about this years ago, this whole kind of like obsession with work and productivity as the measure of being alive, where we're supposed to basically wed ourselves to our jobs and define ourselves by that. Now, let me be clear. The re I think one of the reasons why it frustrates me so much is that I was someone at one point in my life, I was that person. When I first got into higher education, right, and when I did, like, I worked all the time, all the time. I was, like, that kind of person with the, like, that missionary zeal, if you will, Right? I've also talked pretty openly on this show about how my time at Kutztown University was the thing that broke me of that. <laughs> it broke me for a few years. Because there's two things at work here. For you to flourish at your job, to love what you're doing and putting in those extra efforts, you have to be doing so in conditions that support that. And there's a breaking point. And they want to say it's more like it's the work-life balance manifesto. Well, maybe, but it's also a recognition 
that the culture of work and the, the materiality of our work lives is so degraded that people are saying like, why am I doing this? The ideology, in other words, no longer corresponds with the reality of work. Not that it ever did, but we've reached this kind of like, you know, <clears throat> what do you call it? The uh, <clears throat> mass, whatever. I can't, I'm just, I'm just not thinking of the word. Critical mass, right? You reached a critical mass where more and more sectors of the economy are doing this, right? Because in American culture, like, you know, we've been fine with pissing on people who work minimum wage and work crappy jobs, right? But as long as say a good sector of the middle class and the kind of the wealthy class are are buffered from that right then we live in something uh, that is willing to do that to dump on people <clears throat> right as long as we could say hey at least i'm not that right because that's really the flip side of the american dream right the flip side of the american dream is not like if i work hard i will succeed if there's also the kind of like, you know, that flame that's kind of like, you know, that's dangling below your ass as you're kind of doing this. That's basically saying, oh, yeah, guess what? If you slow down, right, you're going to drop down and you're going to be one of them. <laughs> right. You don't want that. So keep working. Keep on that treadmill. Work faster. And so we take the small slights along the way. Right. We take the small slights along the way to basically say, oh, Okay, yes, I know. Okay, you're giving me more job duties, but, you know, okay, I guess we're all going to have to kind of tighten our belts and we're going to have to work a little harder. I could do that, right? I could do that because I want to help out myself and my colleagues. I'm going to do that, right? And then there's a little more, and then there's a little more, and then there's a little more. At some point, we find out that we're kind of sitting there and we're, we're not just like working because we're not doing things, right? that drove us and drove our passion for the job, right? If you were kind of lucky enough to have a job like I did, you find yourself spending the bulk of your days filling out assessment reports, filling out forms, clicking boxes, doing things that's important to the administration for the purposes of downsizing your job. <laughs> Right. When, when, cause like, come on, when an administration, when administration or bosses say, we want to look at making work more efficient, what they mean is they want to be able to take more from you and make sure there's fewer of you. And this article, I, I which it was astonishing to me. Let me read another part of this, right? So they say, maybe they call it the post-pandemic zeitgeist. What? Maybe quiet quitting is just an extension of the great resignation, or we, or as we rebranded it, the great renegotiation. I'm glad you rebranded it. Maybe a chunk of our labor force was always phoning it in. Phoning it in. What, what Khan said was not about phoning it in. It was about saying, at what point am I going to respect myself enough to say no? At what point are the demands that are being put on me too much? At what point is the bullshit work that we're asked to do 
at what point does that make us look ourselves in the mirror and say, who the hell are you? That's not phoning it in. A matter of fact, you don't get to the point of quiet quitting until you're freaking exhausted by this nonsense. Now, I remember when Naomi Klein wrote No Logo, right? That book was published in 1999, right? Uh, it got super big in 2000. So 99 or 2000. It was one of those right on the cusp of that, right? And in No Logo, she tracks the kind of rise of the brands and the kind of the offshoring of offshoring of, of our productive capacity, right? Basically, you know, shipping our jobs overseas and all that other kinds of stuff. And she talked at that point, right? This is 22 years ago. At that point, she's talking about this crisis that people are concerned about within kind of American capitalists, right? American capitalists start to be worried about and kind of like the management pages start to get worried about. And it's been pretty consistent since then from 2000 on about, oh, maybe people are not going to are don't seem to be quite as motivated to do their jobs because, look, these good manufacturing jobs, union jobs, right, the whole that bargain that labor management bargain that, okay, you work hard and then you're actually going to be rewarded for that. That's, that's all been breaking down at the same time that student loans is going up. And we're told that the only way that we can get a good job is to be part of the knowledge economy and get a degree, which means taking on thousands and tens of thousands and in some cases over $100,000 worth of debt. We have to pay for our own training now in hopes, no guarantee, in hopes that we can land something that'll keep us out from the morass that, you know, we're used to looking down on saying, I'm not going to be that. Barbara Ehrenreich, who just recently passed away, unfortunately, that was, she was great. She always talked about this, right? She, she called it the fear of falling is really what the middle class is all about in this culture. The fear of falling, the idea that we keep on, we keep running, right? We keep up this, this crazy pace because we're fear, because we don't want to be them. We don't want to be that other. We don't want to be in a situation where we're doing horrible amounts, like the, the horrible work, which is also tinged with all sorts of, obviously, classism with racism, right? About, it has to do with gender disparities in the workforce, all that kind of stuff, right? <clears throat> okay, so let me go back to this. So maybe a chunk of our labor force was always phoning it in, but now they have a loud, large social media presence and better branding, as if, as if this is what it's about. Maybe it's people feeling like suckers for going the extra mile pre-pandemic um, just to get laid off in a mass. Do you think maybe that's a contributing factor? Maybe. I've talked about on this program, several of my students told me exactly that story. They busted their butts through the pandemic and they got slapped in the face afterwards. And not, and they did, this is they were part of the, the great resignation, right? They were part of the group of folks who say, wait a minute, I did all that for you. And now you're going to shit on me? Forget this. I'm out. And they went and got better jobs. Or maybe quiet quitting is a BS pseudo trend. To be honest, we don't know. But there is at least some data to suggest that something real is going on in the psyche of the workforce. So all those assumptions they make, right, they choose to put as, maybe it's this possibility, maybe it's this possibility. They made up. They chose to use that characterization. And notice there's no mention at this point in the article. There's no mention of what working conditions have been like. Nothing. Why not say 
Maybe the trend towards having to piss into plastic bottles just to deliver our packages on time, like Amazon workers do, right, is resonating with people and saying this has gone too far. Where's that as a possibility? Next thing they say is a quote, this is from Julia Pollack, quote, with layoffs and firings at a record low, people have unprecedented job security, says Julia Pollack, chief economist at the job search website ZipRecruiter, quote, and so the risk of termination is lower. And that's also why the incentive to work harder is reduced. The consequences of being found to shirk, um, to sh the consequences of, of being found to shirk have become much smaller. One, because companies can't afford to fire people. And two, because there are so many alternatives out there if you lose, if you lose your job. Let's flip this around. So basically what she's saying here, the same logic that this entire article follows is like, oh, wait a minute. Workers are starting to get a little bit of power. And because they're not as afraid of falling into destitution, then they're questioning whether they want to work in the way that they used to. They're questioning, well, wait a minute, if I can get a better job, why would I, and, and see my family more, why wouldn't I do that? Or, wait a minute, if I'm not afraid, if I'm not in a constant state of fear, but I like the, this place that I work, but I don't like the conditions that are work, maybe, I'm going to not, I'm either one asked to change. You're going to change it like they're doing at Starbucks, like they're doing at Amazon, like they're doing at other places, right? I'm either going to do that, right? Or I'm out. Or if I need the job, but I'm just really, you know, I'm kind of comfortable. Maybe what I'm going to do is that I'm going to basically do my job and that's it. But we've got this completely warped sense of what kind of commitment we're supposed to give to our work for pay that we're all some kind of freaking we're in some weird priesthood that we're supposed to be thankful right we're supposed to take the suffering right suffering is good that's part of what it means that builds character all that nonsense so we're going to stick there and we're going to say okay you know what what i'm asked to do all this other stuff i'm just going to say no it's not a requirement of my job. I do my job good. I'll do my job well. But all these other asks that you're asking me to do, to take on more, to do X, Y, and Z, to like pretend that I'm happy all the time. No, I'm not doing it. Sorry. <laughs> you want to fire me for it? Bring it on. But what we see here from Julia Pollack and from ZipRecruiter and lots of other voices in this article is the idea that, oh, see that? That's the problem. Whose voice is saying this? Think about that. From whose perspective do you look at what's happening and say, oh, God, maybe it's because workers got it too good right now. They're the problem of the economy, right? Look, yeah, workers definitely have it too good. We're going to have to get on their asses again if we want to kind of get productivity up again. Who thinks like that? Who is NPR talking to here? And what does it reveal about NPR's audience that this is acceptable? 
Okay, another paragraph. I'm sorry. But meanwhile, government data shows a historic drop in productivity over the last two quarters. There could be many reasons for this. Again, there could be. We don't know, right? The supply chain fiasco, a record rate of job switching, business hiring decisions during a weird time for the economy, scars from the pandemic, growing pains from the mass adoption of remote work. You name it. Okay, I'll name it. Brutal working conditions. Unfair labor practices. Inequality like we have not seen on the face of this planet. Rapid redistribution of wealth to the top 1 point or 0.001%. A bargain that was struck, the bargain that was supposed to work hard to succeed is laughable. And people know it. Back to the article, but some argue that something like quiet quitting might have might have something to do with it. Oh, some. Who are these some? It would certainly play into the sentiment expressed by some of America's biggest corporations. Their employees just aren't being productive enough. Yes. Now we get whose voice we're talking about. America's biggest corporation. The underwriters of NPR and Planet Money. Maybe the kind of like the, the uh, you know, the good liberal corporateers who listen to their NPR and donate every single year, but just can't understand why their employees aren't working hard and ple pleasant with their job, right? And again, I know I'm purposely exaggerating the point here, okay? Because I'm so frustrated. This is they're, they're, they're peddling this nonsense. But now we know the voice. It would certainly play into a sentiment expressed by some of America's biggest corporations. Their employees just are just being productive enough. Somehow, we don't understand. We used to be able to whip them, and they said, thank you, sir, may I have another? And now, they're taking the whip from us, and they're whipping us back. <laughs> right? They say, also, Gallup recently did a survey about quiet quitting, counting workers who report being neither engaged nor actively disengaged at work. They found that these quiet quitters make up at least half of the U.S. workforce. If that doesn't scream there is a problem with the culture of work in this country, I don't know what does. And by culture of work, I mean the material conditions of work in this country. People are not disengaged from their jobs if they feel respected, if they're adequately compensated, they've got time off, they have the flexibility that's going to help support their lives. No. Instead, we got people pissing in bottles to deliver our packages on time, even on Sundays. Now, Gallup, they do quote someone from Gallup here at the end of this kind of series of section, which they say, Gallup says, it's clear that quiet quitting is a symptom of poor management. At least Gallup gets in here saying, look, that's the problem. Poor management is the, is the, you know, is the reason. At least they're pointing kind of in that direction. But that's it. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on here. But then they try to kind of like they want to cover their asses, right? Because they know they got a they got a fairly kind of liberal leaning audience out there in NPR. They got to cover their asses, so they go to Hamilton Nolan, right, writing for the Gar Guardian, who is also kind of one of the kind of editors or uh, writers for um, uh, American Prospect, right? Says so Hamilton Nolan, Nolan writing the Guardian, stresses that workers in generations past also felt a collective sense of malaise. That a collective sense of malaise. That's the one quote. But they channeled their frustration into something more productive than coasting on their jobs, creating unions. 
quote, all of these working peoples did not, people did not quit, nor were they quiet. They knew what was wrong and they fixed it loudly. Now, here's what's interesting. The only quotes from Hamilton Nolan in this piece say that, okay, right, workers in past had a collective sense of malaise and what they did, all these people um, did not quit. They were quiet, um, nor were they quiet. They knew something was wrong and they fixed it loudly. That's what's going on. What do you think is giving those workers more worker power? You've got Amazon, you've got Starbucks, you've got the nurses' strike that's going on. You've got organizing happening like it's never before. Right? And part of what's emboldened that is that you have you have a time when workers were fed up and say, no, we're not going to do it. And they are trying to fix it. But we get Hamilton Nolan's voice put in here, right? Someone on the liberal left end of things. We get him put in here by in order to kind of say, yeah, see, the workers today, lazy. In the past, like, yeah, the good old past, right? Back in, you know, World War II, uh, the greatest generation, they formed unions. They fixed it loudly. Kids today, that's that's what they want you to read from what Hamilton Nolan says. Then, the last voice they give in this section, even U.S. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh recently chimed in on quiet quitting. Quote, if you are an employer, you should catch on early enough that your employees aren't satisfied, aren't happy, and then there needs to be a dialogue, a conversation, as if a dialogue and conversation by itself is going to go. No. Yet, can that help on the margins? Yeah, but guess what? This is the thing. That's the logic of 25 years ago. Hey, you know what? We need to, we need to get there. This is the logic of Saturn, right? What they found at Saturn, when they founded Saturn, right? Saturn, Saturn's now defunct. Right. Back to the grind was that actually if you gave workers the power to stop the line of production while producing cars and you gave them certain kinds of authority, not only did, were the workers more productive, not only were the workers happier. Right. But you produce a better product. Quicker and better with less waste. Right, and they find, and you pay them well. That was then. We don't live in that world anymore. Now, as much as I'm glad that Marty Walsh is the president, is the U.S. Secretary of Labor, <clears throat> I'm saying Marty ain't going to do it. That ain't going to do it. You cannot exist in a society that strips away the wealth of the country and gives it to the 0.01% of people in the greatest redistribution of wealth that this country has ever seen, upwards to the already insanely rich. You cannot do that and have happy workers. Sorry. You can't just sit there down and say, hey, Tell me about your feelings. I seem that you're a little unhappy. Unless your company, your organization is prepared to do what's necessary <coughs> to sustain the lives of the workers. And we do not do that in this country. And counter to what they say in this article, workers are organizing to change the conditions of their lives. Are enough of them? No. Here's the thing. Really what I think that that who they have in their minds as these workers are not the massive amount, the massive workers here. They don't have the railroad workers in their mind. They don't have the Amazon workers in their mind. 
right? They don't have Starbucks workers in their mind. They have the people in their mind who work in white-collar jobs, right, who get paid fairly decently, right, who used to have it better and had no worries about falling. Their lives were comfortable. They had a kind of way to do it. And they, that group of people has seen their lives wrecked by what has happened to our work culture here. That is what I experienced, certainly, in my job in higher education at Cookstown University. It was gradual at first, but it was persistent and to the point. And I've said this before, I use this as kind of a stand-in, but I remember when I used to have meetings with coworkers and we used to talk about ideas. We used to talk about, you know, all the things that we were working on, right? And kind of how do we bring this stuff into the classroom and these really rich discussion. And now there are fewer and fewer spaces for that. Our conversations about how the hell are we going to manage to teach our classes when they keep on cutting the faculty? Or how do we teach in such a way that are going to meet these obsess uh, uh, assessment objectives? And let's have another meeting about assessment so we can turn all this stuff into data so we can be better performing for our masters. And pretend that that equals quality teaching. It does not. My friends in K through 12 know exactly what I'm talking about because they went through it with standardized testing. When education shifted over a period of time to now you are kind of like wedded to those tests. There are still amazing teachers out there, but they're burning out. There's a reason why there's an edu there's a teacher shortage and a teacher crisis right now in education, not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country. It's the same logic. You're asked to substitute love for compensation and good working conditions. That if you are unhappy in your job, guess what? It's your fault. You didn't love it enough. You didn't give enough. How many people out there have heard that? I sure as hell did. I was told by my colleagues, well, you know, maybe this is the wrong place for you. I was told that by my former president of my union when I first came to Kutztown. Oh, wait, you're upsetting the apple cart? Maybe Kutztown isn't the place for you. We're a team. We're a family. Yep, exactly, Emily. So whatever. I could go on in this. And basically, they, they go on and on in this article. Um, the interesting thing about this is that at the very end, right, literally at the very end of the article, right, we don't even get the voices of, like, Hamilton Nolan and Marty Walsh. We don't even get their voices until almost the end. And as we know, most people don't even read all the way to the end. Everything that's up in the, in the that's highlighted, that's prioritized, that's, that we want to make sure people read this, is about how workers are freaking lazy. They have the apologists who come in a little bit like, oh, I had to look, you know, employers are trying, right? Companies are really trying. And, and how are they doing that? Eight of the 10, here it is, quote, this is from the New York Times. A recent investigation by the New York Times finds that, quote, eight of the 10 largest private U.S. employers track the productivity metrics of individual workers, many in real time. And they document a surge in companies investing in, quote, digital productivity monitoring to oversee their white collar employees. 
Quote, many employees, whether working remotely or in person, are subject to trackers, scores, idle buttons, or just quiet, constantly accumulating records. Pauses could lead to penalties and lost pay to lost jobs. And they, oh, the writers say, oh, it's all a bit icky. But that's how they're doing. That's what corporate America's doing. Measure you more. Track you more. At the very end of this, they actually give quotes from actual real people <laughs> about their experiences. They get someone who's a department manager, someone who's an attorney, someone who's an administrative assistant, someone who's a laborer, like just a land laborer, right? Someone who's a university research assistant, school bus driver, a nurse. That's the only time you actually get to get a window into actual workers here. The rest of it is all how do you better manage the workforce to get them to be more productive, to do what you want, to shut their mouths. And what we see happening at the Fed right now, the idea that we're going to kind of look at inflation, which is real. And the only tool that our government can do, chooses to do, is to mess around with the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, um, interest rate. Why? Because what does that do? They're messing around with their interest rate in such a way that they are aware they are purposely causing a situation that will put more pressure on workers, make their lives worse, right, and lead to more unemployment. That's what they are. There's their logic of how you do this. Instead of investment in our infrastructure, go back to our climate discussion. You want to solve inflation. You actually create the productive capacity actually to address the actual real crisis that we're in. And suddenly you have lots of work, lots of productive capacity, and that gets sucked up in the economy and inflation goes down. Boom. But we don't live in that world. And this kind of nonsense coming from a public radio session is disgusting. That's why I was upset. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back from this, uh, I'm going to talk a little about what's happening here in Pennsylvania. I went a lot longer on that than I thought I was going to. So um, I probably won't keep you as long. So sorry about that, everybody. Uh, we'll be back right after this quick break with a look into what's happening here. Remind you can help support this show. You can help support our work. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can choose five bucks a month. That'll get you. That'll get you a member. Head on over to our YouTube channel, right? Subscribe to that channel. Make sure you kind of boost up our um, number of subscribers so other people get to see this show. Leave us a review in our podcast, in your podcast app, wherever you get your podcast, um, and help get the word out. Help other people find the show. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll be back right after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1920. At noon, a horse-drawn wagon containing 100 pounds of dynamite pulled up across the street from the J.P. Morgan Company on Wall Street in New York City. 500 pounds of cast iron slugs were packed in with the dynamite. A timer detonated at 12.01 p.m. 
The explosion destroyed the horse and wagon. Shrapnel from the explosion ripped through the air, killing 38 people and injuring hundreds more. The unknown driver of the wagon was believed to have escaped. Authorities blamed anarchists. Meanwhile, the company's workers who died in the attack were mostly young messengers, stenographers, clerks, and brokers. Most of the wounded suffered severe injuries. Just minutes after the blast, the president of the New York Stock Exchange suspended trading in order to prevent a panic. Since the target had been the J.P. Morgan Company, the New York State District Attorney suggested the bomb was planted by radical anti-capitalists. The Bureau of Investigation, the forerunner to the FBI, pursued the bombing for three years. They never found the culprit. In 1944, the FBI reopened the investigation and decided the bomb was the work of Italian anarchists. There was speculation that the bomb was planted by an Italian in retaliation for the executions of Sacco and Vanzetti. Three days after the bombing, the New York Times reported, it was said today at the Department of Justice that Attorney General Palmer would recommend in his annual report to Congress that drastic laws for dealing with anarchists and other disturbing elements be enacted. At the same time, he will ask for larger appropriations, which were denied in the past. Over the next two years, the Palmer raids arrested and deported many accused leftists. Not surprising, most of the accused and deported were the loudest voices for workers' rights and a united working class. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Thank you, thank you, Emily. Uh, sorry, the audio, I had shut my mic off there for a second. Sorry, I had a coughing fit, <laughs> so my bad. Welcome, welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, uh, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, I had a little audio uh, uh, problem there with uh, my mic off. Obviously, you're not going to hear me if I have my mic off. Anyways, uh, welcome back. Um, thank you for all the likes. Thank you for the shares. Uh, thank you for getting the word out. Um, and uh, for the additional subscriptions, that's uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, it kind of just makes my day. So a uh, little closer to home here in Bucks County, um, kind of more proof that uh, like the fight of the school board fights are certainly not over. And now we're starting to see some of the downstream effects of electing um, extremists to our school boards, right? This is also the same reason why kind of, you know, of course we started the, uh, we started our little pack in uh, uh, thanks to the folks at levelfield.net. We were able to kind of set up this uh, this pack that was about uh, stopping the extremism on our school boards, right? The whole idea is we don't let Paul Martino and the other kind of oligarchs of Bucks County kind of buy our schools. Um, and uh, we need to be able to kind of fight back and provide kind of, you know, organizations and candidates with some uh, what little resources that we can muster um, to get behind supporting um, kind of that kind of change you can want more information about that you can go to ragingchicken.levelfield.net uh, you can make a contribution for as little as uh, five bucks a month right uh, or any um, any um, contribution of, of any size um, we would welcome um, so as we gear up yes the midterms are right now but we're gonna have to hit the ground running um, to make sure that like uh, not only are we focused on the midterm elections but we're also going to be focusing on what is happening in our communities that day after that election so I understand a lot of people's attention right Right now is focused on um, these midterm elections, justifiably so. Absolutely essential to get out there and vote, kind of support the candidates that um, are going to, you know, help number one, help hold the House at the uh, um, the national level, um, take over the Senate, um, and basically reduce, if not take over the um, state House and the state 
Senate. But anyways, if we look at what happened this week in Central Bucks High School, we found out that thanks to reporting in the Career Times that the uh, Central Bucks West High School administrators told teachers not to use a student's preferred name or pronoun if it does not match the information in the school's database unless they have permission of the student's parents. All right, the schools, and this is what it's called, the Gender Identification Procedure. It's putting Central Bucks in legal jeopardy again with organizations um, like the ACLU, uh, the Educational Legal Center, and so on, um, by basically uh, fostering discrimination um, kind of in those schools. And so what does this actually um, kind of look like? Hold on, where is that? Oh, it just disappeared. I'm sorry about this. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I think I accidentally closed out of a uh, of a screen that had the article up for me. Sorry about that. Um, so anyway, Central Buck Schools, um, what they did. So basically with this kind of teacher, what with this announcement, they're basically saying this is the new policy. Um, and so they weren't told that it's, if a student basically, so say you have a student, you, you read your roster, right? You're giving this roster that has a student's name on it, right? Um, my practice is always to be able to say, okay, I'm going to call you, um, call your name. Um, if you're something that you'd, you'd rather be called, um, kind of let me know, right? I'll make a note of it, right? And that's, look, I mean, and that's has that, yes, it has to do with what people want are kind of say in transition or they're kind of identifying as male when, you know, their name seems female, right? all, all that kind of stuff. Yes, it has to do with that, but also just kind of in general. Yeah, I've had so many students over the years, which, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time saying that, right? Um, because I have students over the years, you know, it'll say kind of like Emily, right, on there, and but they go by Michelle, right? Because that's like their middle name or something like that, right? And that's, okay, good. So that's what I'm going to call you, right? So there. So under this policy, let's be clear. Under this policy, if I said, hey, um, Emily, you know, uh, is Emily here? And Emily raises her hand and Emily says, Hi, yeah, I know it says Emily, but um, kind of like, like everyone refers to me as Michelle. Right. So technically, those are two kind of female sounding names. So my understanding is, even though that is the the um, students preferred name right because it does it does that's a student's preferred name right it says michelle instead of emily but because it doesn't run into gender issues then apparently that's okay it's only when you're talking about gender if i'm getting this right so the administrators at the school central box west high school basically said they were told to inform the guidance so to Teachers were said, you can't use a student's preferred name or pronoun if it doesn't match the information to school. So it's not on my roster in that particular way. You tell me that's not who you are, that you tell me that this is who your name is and this is what your pronouns are. I'm saying, sorry, I am going to call you by the name and the pronouns you do not want and do not identify with. That is going to be what I have to do. I'm being told to do. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to report you to the guidance counselors. Right. So it says that they were told to inform guidance counselor about any student who requests a different name or pronoun. So not only am I said, nope, sorry, I can't refer to you this. Now the policy says I have to report you to the guidance counselor. So now you as a student got to think twice. 
especially if you are kind of you know you're you're kind of new to identifying differently like you're you're kind of making really hard choices in your life right and you're nervous right and this is kind of not something that you do lightly and you know there's risk of saying this because you know we live in a culture that is not exactly friendly it's all that kind of stuff right because now you say to the teacher you want to correct the teacher and say oh you know actually like my name's not joe my name is i don't know candace right my name is emily we'll use emily again right my name is amless my emily in order to do that, you got to be like, oh, if I say that, they're going to report me to the guidance counselor. Okay? Then what happens? So it's not just you report it to the guidance counselor, but now the guidance counselor would then arrange a conversation with the student's parents or guardians so that they could approve their student's name and or program change. Let's be clear what this is. This is suppression writ large. Why? Because guess what? While there are families that may be supportive of students who are making sense of their gender identity, right? It's also very much the case and very true that kids who are questioning their gender, their, their gender identity often face violence in their own homes for doing so. So if I happen, if I, you know, um, by all kind of outwards appearances, I, I'm, I seem like I'm a boy, but for years I have been not feeling right and slowly have been realizing that I'm going to identify as female and to take all the risks and, and support and kind of like muster and strength in order to kind of enter the world as this say that I'm considering these things. I might be in a household, a very Christian household, conservative Christian household that sees that as evil. And that maybe my parents are going to beat it out of me. But I went to school, in school I got a chance to meet people, and it felt like a safe space that I was actually supported for whoever the hell I said I was, because I felt that my teachers cared about me. And now I'm being told that if I ask that teacher who cares about me, if I say, can you please refer to me by my chosen name instead of what's on your roster? And instead of calling me he, call me she. That that teacher under this policy is supposed to report me to the guidance counselor and my abusive parents are going to come in and we're going to have a conversation about this. What do you think that looks like for that student? What do you think? <clears throat> Emily says, my 11th grader is a trans male, and we've made the change this year at school for the roster. He had his one teacher um, use his preferred name, and even before he came, came out to us, glad the teacher could. Exactly. <clears throat> even with supportive family. 
it is only natural for a kid to worry about this, worry about consequences, worry is he going to lose the love of his parents, right? Or her parents. If they come out, not because the parents are necessarily homophobic, right? But because we live in a culture that tells us we should be in the closet all the time. And that increasingly the case. And for whatever reason, if you got to see a teacher that suddenly is like, they feel comfortable enough to come and that helps them kind of come forward. Right. And you've got a supportive family. That's freaking awesome. And just like Emily said, then you go to that teacher and you're like, thank you for being there because you love your freaking kid. <laughs> and now these teachers are being told, no, you can't do that. You're going to be the gender Stasi, <laughs> right? This article that was in uh, WHYY, um, once again, huge, huge shout out um, goes to Emily Rizzo for just, I mean, really, I mean, her reporting has been absolutely phenomenal on this, consistently phenomenal. Obviously, thanks thanks go out to the Bucks County Beacon, right, who have been nonstop in their coverage of this stuff. Right, but in the article, so I just want to kind of read a couple of these things for you. So administrators introduced the procedure that at a faculty meeting six days into the school year. Teachers said administrators cited protecting parents' rights for the reason. This is going to be all sorts of lawsuits coming up now. Four teachers told WHYY News about the meeting and the unprecedented pushback from educators. Quote, a lot of us are distraught, said uh, Becky Cardi Haring, who has taught English at Central Bucks for 16 years, Central Bucks West for 16 years. I quote, I physically felt sick at that meeting. Listening to an administrator basically argue that we were going to protect ourselves by outing children is heart wrenching. It's just cruel, unquote. Teachers said administrators told them they have to follow parents or guardians' wishes if they differ from a student's. Think about that. Quote, what the children wanted was completely irrelevant, said David Klein, who has been teaching social studies at Central Bucks West for 26 years. Klein said he is not going to follow the new procedure. Quote, there's no way I'm hurting a kid. Hell no. I cannot be complicit in harming children, Klein said, raising his voice. Quote, and I said this in the meeting. This is the most at-risk, marginalized group of students, and they need our support more than anyone else. No. Kid, kid says, call me Tony. I'm calling him Tony. Right? Klein and other teachers are unwilling to dead name a student in front of their peers, parents, and other, local, other school staff. Klein said again, my job is to educate your kids and to prepare them for the future, to make them feel safe, period. That's my call in parting me. Or he says, pardon me. And Klein said, choking up. I'm calling you, Tony, because you need to feel safe in my classroom. How else are you going to learn? And if they want to fire me, that's their business. This is my loud shout out to PSEA. The union needs to have these teachers' backs. And I hope they, I hope they are. PSEA did not want a culture war. They wanted to avoid it. They didn't want to get involved. They wanted... You, you got it. And you need to decide which side are you on. And I hope to hell that PSEA is lining up 100% behind these teachers. And that they will join the lawsuits 
I am so freaking proud of these uh, of these teachers who came out and spoke like this and why I wanted to read their voices. And again, there's more in this article, but I wanted to read some of their voices in part because teachers have been afraid to talk about this. And you've been going after them, you've going after them and forced them to do more and forced them to do more and more questionably ethical situations. And finally, like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm taking a stand. I'm doing this and I, I, I cannot. Ethically, morally, anything about what I do as an educator, I cannot possibly be complicit in this right-wing extremist agenda. I cannot do it. Thank freaking God for them. We have to be prepared to have their backs too as well. So... Very good. Some other Bucks County news. Uh, we're going to continue to follow that one, certainly. Um, this kind of made it out there. There's a group of former Republican lawmakers and officials are under the, the banner of Republicans for Shapiro, held a fundraiser for Josh Shapiro in Bucks County. I'm sure that the Shapiro campaign is so happy about this, right? Yeah, because I've been courting the Republicans for a while. So this is the classic kind of centrist Democrat move. But, you know, look, you got, you know, people that are showing up and, you know, good for that. And more votes who kind of welcome them. Um, gotta love it. Um, it's good. It's good to see them actually stepping out, um, at this meeting, this was at the, the home. Uh, I, I assume it's the home, the way that it's kind of looking at here, but at the home of former U S Congressman James Greenwood, um, he had that the, uh, the fundraiser brought 130 Republicans, Democrats and independents to his home. And among those attendants were former Congressman Charlie Dent, former state Senator Joe Conti, former state Senator and common police judge and district attorney, David Heckler, former state representative, David style um, and Margaret Quinn Quinn and former state uh, Senate president pro tempore and Lieutenant governor, uh, Robert Jubilee, I guess, and former secretary of Pennsylvania department of environmental protection, EPA regional administrator, uh, Jim Seif and people who've been reliable um, Republican contributors. The good thing about this is in the, the, you know, there was a whole bunch of kind of talk at this thing, apparently about why Josh Shapiro is good and all that stuff. That's a, um, but then this is what I think, like equally important. This was from uh, Greenwood, right? Um, he said equally important to why Josh Shapiro is good. Equally important. We believe that the Republican candidate, Doug Mastriano, is an extremist who is unequipped to serve as our governor. He is one of the country's leading purveyors of the big lie that Donald Trump won the election, including in Pennsylvania, without providing a shred of evidence. The fact that they're not just coming out and supporting him, but they're actually taking down Mastriano is a good move, right? And I'm glad to see it. But of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, the officials that uh, run the Bucks County Republican Party said, these people do not represent our values. So there's the big question. If they don't represent the values, you know, the people, the Republicans, the former Republican legislators and, and officials who basically say that we don't want an extremist as governor, if they don't represent your values, then what are your values? Your values are Christian nationalism as writ large by Doug Mastriano, apparently. How else do you, how else do you, You say you're disappointed they're supporting Shapiro, which means that you're supporting Mastriano, which means that you're comfortable supporting an extremist, a Christian nationalist. A guy has perpetrated lies, has gaslighted any chance that he gets as he sits from his, like, Facebook live bunker. Here you go. So, masks off, folks. Masks off. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. 
Also got here, uh, I'll just throw this in at the end here. I just got a couple cool space news things. Uh, saw the uh, NASA Perseverance rover, saw the highest concentration of organic matter in some of the uh, uh, rock samples that that uh, turned out was really cool. Some of the pictures that are online, there's a link in the show notes also, uh, online about the, the cores are pretty cool. Know that they're actually, they're going to go and pick them up, right, uh, in a few years and bring them back for study so that we can actually learn if there's actually signs of life in there. There's these, apparently, these organic, say, um, biological markers or organic bioorganic markers or whatever that would be more indicative of life but you have to you have to do some additional tests on that a little bit harder to do that from you know however millions of miles away they are um so pretty cool um and the other thing is like yeah i, I love this stuff on the uh on the uh, uh there were some cool beams out there about this meteor that went across uh, northern ireland uh northern england and uh uh scotland Right. Uh, and of course, it happens right in the in the wake of the Queen's death and, you know, Charles III taking over. And so there's a meteor going over and, you know, people will poke in a little bit at that. It's like, oh, God, you know, this is like the sign from God. It's like, oh, this is a freaking meteor. Um, but it's good. But apparently the, the, the cool thing about that story, why what, kind of what caught my eye about it this week is because they thought initially they thought it was space junk. Right. Because um, it, w- it, w- it was moving a lot slower than, say, like a meteor would move. Um, so they thought it must have been some kind of falling satellite or uh, something. They thought it was for a while there. They thought it was stuff from Starlink, Elon Musk's uh, satellites out there. Um, but it turns out that it was they as they got more data and kind of looked at the trajectory of this thing, it came in on this orbit that was uh, more consistent with uh, an asteroid. Um, they thought that it was slower because it must have been a piece that actually had broken off from a larger asteroid. So it was kind of coming in a little bit of a different angle and it had been going slower, apparently, is what they were saying. So um, so there you go. So no sign from God uh, that uh, King Charles will kind of rule over his empire um, indefinitely, um, nor is it Elon Musk uh, trashing up our atmosphere. So there you have it. Anyways, uh, went a little longer than I was going, planning on doing initially, folks. Uh, Thanks so much for sticking with me. Uh, I appreciate the time. I appreciate all your support. appreciate the tweets and the subscriptions. Uh, uh, Keep it up. Um, uh, We've got lots of work ahead of us to do. That's for sure. All right, so this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, We'll be back on Monday. Uh, We've got a potential couple of potential guests here. Let me check real quick and see if I got anything back from anybody. Not yet. So got a a couple of potential guests. I'll just keep updated. If not, we'll do another kind of community show. Um, I'd hope to get some guests, though, for Monday, and we'll see what we can do. So this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Keep up the faith. Keep up the work. uh, Keep up the organizing. Here we go. See ya. Let me try my people come.